Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. BTG gang! Alright everyone, we are back with a brand spanking new episode, and this one is about vermouth. I love vermouth. Um, I like to drink it on its own. Uh, when I ran a wine bar, we had many different vermouths on the menu. We had a section that we called scissorps, which is where we stored those things. Um, but when I did my study abroad in college in Madrid, I used to drink vermouth. A bunch of different places had it on tap. Shout out Casa Lucio that was very close to my abode. We would just drink a fuck ton of vermouth on ice, and it was delicious with a little bit of jamón and marcona almonds. Um, but Burke is the founder of Rockwell Vermouth. He is making some really exciting vermouth out in California using indigenous herbs. It's really exciting to speak with someone who's making vermouth out in California. Burke has a long history in the wine industry, working in sales, distribution, supply side, and he runs Iconic Wines, which is a California-based winery. Uh, so lots of fun stuff for us to get into today. Uh, here's the conversation. Here's Burke. You're launching You're launching a brand while simultaneously doing the whole like parenting from home thing, right? Yeah, it's um, brutal. <laughs> uh, a lot of um, Zoom kindergarten, which is horrible. What do you do in Zoom kindergarten? That's um, kind of the vibe with it's that. It's funny. We actually we, we had like a, coloring. a mix because we actually we also bought a house and decided to remodel it during twenty twenty. Jesus as Christ, well. dude! So, what, um, very ambitious twenty twenty. So we um we we were over in Napa. We had a rental house over there, and um we had like Napa Zoom school, and it was like super organized and great, and like the kids were learning. It, it blew me away how well the teachers took something that was really difficult. I think. And like to hold a five-year-old's attention on Zoom. Oh, totally. And then we moved over and put the kid into the Santa Rosa school system. And um, there were some things that were better. I, I want to give them credit, but like theirs was just this horrible mix. It was imagine like a, a Zoom meeting with twenty people of adults is already horrible. <laughs> it was just like an hour and a half a day of like, "Hey, Susie," and they're like, "Ah, I'm wearing a pink sweater today." Like, and even my own five-year-old is losing his mind. I'm like, dude, I don't blame you. This is insane. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's fucking brutal. Oof. In the house, how much how much renovations were required with that? Were you on your own? Um, not that many um, until I got a hold of it, and then I ripped out the kitchen immediately. Um, and I, we, it was totally random. We we were my wife and I were kind of like you know, at the end of 2020, which is crazy, right? Because I don't know. If, totally different subject, but real estate, everything has gone insane, you know, wood prices. Have, and so we got so lucky right in the middle of the glass fire here in Napa, like everything has shut down. We were kind of looking and we went out one day with a realtor. We looked at three houses, found this one. And it was like the, the owners had to sell for various personal reasons. And the price was crazy, like good. And we were like, look, lock it up. We'll close in 30 days. We'll figure it out. Um, so yeah. So the funniest part is we moved to Santa Rosa primarily because it's closer to where I work and I do a lot of um, mm -hmm. stuff in Geyserville and you know, we moved here and people were like, Oh, Santa Rosa is beautiful. And my wife and I were almost laughing because we were like, wow, really? I don't honestly, it's just been covered in smoke and we haven't even looked up. Yeah. Like, is it, did, did we move to a beautiful place? <laughs> we forgot to check. That's wild. 
moving in the middle of a um, big hellstorm. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's been a, a long 12 months. I'm sure that it for everyone, like it, not just us. But... For everyone, for sure. So, yeah, I, I know that your main project, or at least the other project, is Iconic yeah. Plants, right? So that's what I've been doing. This will be my 11th harvest on that. So we've been doing it over, over 10 years. Dang. Um, that's exciting, man. And I mean, you're sourcing fruit from a lot of different sites, right? There's Lodi in there, Mendocino, uh, parts of Napa and Sonoma, right? It's kind of being sourced from a lot of different areas. Yeah, yeah. Um, the farthest south vineyard we work with is all the way down in the Santa Lucia Highlands, um, so mm. down by Carmel. Uh, and then the farthest north site is all basically at the bottom of the Redwood Valley ABA. Um, mm. And those two sites, door to door, Jeez, even without traffic would probably be a four and a half, five hour drive. So we're, we're, yeah. we're kind of all over or I'm all over. Uh, it's a lot of driving. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of time in the car, just going up and down the highway. No, um, sure. And were any of the vineyards that you get your fruit from affected by those fires last year? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, we, we lost a couple. Um, we gained a couple, which is cool. Um, my, business partner is my best friend from college and a very kind of brilliant financial mind. And, and I still primarily the bulk of it, but he, you know, he helps a lot and we were getting ready to make a lot of substantial um, capital investments for the vermouth production and things like that early in the spring. And he called me back right at the beginning of March and was like, shut everything down. Don't buy anything like tighten your belt, spend no money. Yep. Like, and, um, so we we cut it off super early and we i even i was closing out wine i think probably before anyone just in terms of like let's just get cash we don't know what's going to happen we don't know how long this is going to last mm. and um but we actually did pretty well fortunately um you know liquor sales through retail kept going and um suddenly our direct sales kept going so come fall um where people were dropping out of vineyard contracts i was signing them you know, like, or, mm. or reaching out. Cause like my new obsession is old vine um, stuff. So we got into like a 118 year old um, Zinfandel vineyard that predates the town of uh, Lodi by probably about five years. We got into a 85 year old dry farm Grenache vineyard, which is probably the oldest Grenache in all of the North Bay. So it's not a variety you think about being, I don't know when I think about old vines in California, Zinfandel immediately comes to mind. Carignan comes to mind, but I don't think about Grenache. That's not something I associate maybe in Australia, but like when I think of California, old vine no, Grenache no, is not at the top of my list. I'm sure maybe more central coast. You can find some of that stuff, but um, mm. I can't, I I'm hard pressed to think of a vineyard over the a Grenache vineyard over the age of 20, 25 years. This, and this one's 85. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, the Rare little gems. Right. And you're going to have to wait <laughs> for someone to, to drop out of them before you, you can swoop in. So that's yeah, just sit there in the cut waiting. The benefit then... of not having your own fruit. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So how many people are full time with iconic wine? Like how many people, I know it's you, your business partner, but when you're sourcing fruit, you're like, you said, you have to be nimble. You have to be able to move quickly. Like how many other people are part of that core team? Me. Like, <laughs> no, I, um, I'm actually up until the pandemic, I was the only, um, full-time employee of the company. Um, my wife, uh, actually did, um, came from a restaurant background and did restaurant operations and, um, basically did a lot of the HR payroll, basically she, she jokes everything, but, um, uh, cook the food and serve it. 
which anyone that's worked in a restaurant mm-hmm. realizes there's actually a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she lost all of that. She, what kind of restaurants did she work in? Uh, we met when I, we were both living in New York. So she still mm. had um, a couple different clients out there and, and a, a family that she's worked for forever. So, of course, that all shut down. We ended up, it kind of worked out because because of all the different things we're doing. She kind of got absorbed into poor management in our company. So she's now our second full-time employee as of like November, I think. Uh, and then my business partner actually um, has a a day job running a fund and doing all this kind of stuff. But he, um, you know, he makes sure that basically I'll, I come up with some crazy scheme and he eventually convinces a bank that they should take a chance on us so that I can have enough cash to go do something. That's his primary role. That's an important job. Um, Someone's got to do it, right? Yeah. But I, I, other than that, I do all of it. Uh, I, 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 we, I share a space at a winery, um, a friend so we work together and we help each other do crush um but you know i'm i'm topping the barrels i'm i'm in cleaning out the press for for all of the iconic and for all the rockwell stuff the i have a, a kind of a second label called sidekick which is a little bit more mm. negotiant style started sourcing a little bit of juice now i work with a very large kind of um custom winery um i say that that's the closest i'll ever be to a famous uh winemaking consultant um because <laughs> I go down there and I write work orders and I drink a cup of coffee and, and guys in orange vests have to pull hoses and, and do all of that. But that, that production's about 10,000 cases. So there's just no way I could do that on my own. So, and then when did uh, Rockwell Vermouth like come around as an idea? Like when did you, like you'd been making wine, you said this is your 11th harvest doing iconic wines. Like how early on were you like, you know, Vermouth is something I want to be doing? Um, how old's my son? Maybe six, about six years ago. Basically, um, it was, was the seeds of it, I would say. Um, basically, my wife got pregnant. We were living in Brooklyn at the time. I was actually still flying out here. Iconic was much, much smaller. So I was flying back and forth and, um, you know, pretending like I was a lot cooler that than I really bi-coastal am. bi-coastal elite I know, lifestyle. Right? I love it. I just, uh, there we go. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of sleeping in friends' couches and things. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I didn't want to open, you know, a good bottle of wine because she wasn't drinking. And, uh, you know... So I was like, oh, I'll make a cocktail. And like my favorite are the Negroni, Manhattan, Martini, a lot of the things. And all those drinks have vermouth in them. At the same time, I, I worked in wholesale distribution in New York. And so I one of my mentors, a guy named Dan Petrowski, who makes Masakon. Shout out Masakon, right? I mean, fucking amazing wines. No, Dan's amazing. So he Dan was my consulting winemaker for the first five years of Iconic. He's the only reason... I get to do what I do. So I brought Masakon to New York City. That's how we got connected and he took me in under his wing. Um, and so he's he was making, and he still does these like amazing, you know, 60-year-old vine, vintage dated vermouth, uh, although I think he's changed up his program a little bit. Um, yeah, we don't see a lot of those in Texas. The Ania comes, the Sauvignon Blanc comes, but the wines are so, so good. Um, the vermouth, he brought, I think, a couple of bottles for us to try, but I don't know how much of it actually like came into the state. It was more just for shits and giggles when he was working the market to like show us. Nice. The, That's awesome. That's vermouth. so cool that you met Super him. cool. He's, he's amazing. Um, no, like yeah. Said. So cool. So nice. So down to earth. I mean, a rock star. No, our, so he helped me make the first kind of two Chardonnays that started Iconic. And, and I, I, yeah, I would say the winemaking protocol is still probably 80% of his winemaking protocol you know I, I feel like after 10 years I've, i'm starting to find a little bit of my own style as opposed to my mentor but no he's amazing um and so yeah so he had this vermouth you know i'm drinking cocktails 
my mentor's making vermouth. Wine's, mo- you know, vermouth is mostly wine. So you're like, ah, like, I could do this. How hard can it be? And um, I jo- my joke is it's it's really hard <laughs> if you want to do a certain <laughs> thing. The other thing that started to form for me was like, you know, I saw the struggles that Dan had with his vermouth program, it being more of an aperitif, more of a finished product. Um, not do you say str- you're saying struggles in making it or struggles in selling it? Selling it because I was I was the one yeah. actually you know I was actually selling Mascon in New York City and and there's a mm. really really formative thing that happened. Um, it's killing me. I cannot think of his name. I I, I was trying to delay because I was hoping it was going to come back to me. I apologize, but we edit this so I can I can <laughs> cut out a pause or something like that. Uh, you don't have to worry about it. No, it's it's funny. so we called on um so there's a ZZ's clam bar in New York City, which is um kind of the only like Michelin starred cocktail bar. I remember speaking with the bartender there and because we, we had worked with other people in the restaurant group and I, I was so excited to bring Dan's vermouth to him because I thought like this would be so cool, we're finally gonna get to work in this stuff. He tasted it and he goes, oh, this is really good. He's like, but it's a finished product. He's like, I need salt and pepper. And it really changed mm-hmm. my mindset of like, honestly, that sentence is was really formative to what Rockwell eventually became because you know, I didn't think of that as like a bartender thinking more as a chef, right? Like a, a, a winemaker's perspective is you're like Moses. You're coming down from the hill with the testaments. And you're like, look at this thing I have. It is the perfect thing. It is the solution. No one's going to mess with it. You wouldn't take someone's wine and be like, oh, do you know what this needs? This needs uh, a little bit of bourbon and we're going to mix it over ice and we're going to add this garnish, right? Like that would be sacrilege. I, I mean, to be um, fair, we once for April Fool's Day at my bar poured Opus One because we notoriously didn't sell Napa Cab <laughs> and we were selling Opus One at cost and we did a Kali Mocho with it and it was it was great. It was it was darn tasty. <laughs> it tasted like a like a vanilla Coke or something like that. Yeah, I, it was I, awesome. Like, since starting the vermouth project i'm much more open to mixing wine with stuff because that's all i'm really doing (laughs) basically those were the two big things right i saw kind of dan's idea it started to form more like drinking more cocktails when my wife got pregnant um and then that sentence though kept kind of rattling around in the back of my head and then the final one was i was like well you start researching ingredients and and again winemaker background expressing terroir and I like this idea of um, using only native ingredients. So that's the big thing for Rockwells. We use only um, native herbs and spices to North America. It's because I want to express our terroir. And when you say North right? America, I mean, I know, you, I know you're getting stuff from different areas of the U.S., but there's a lot of things that you're getting straight from California, right? Like predominantly. Oh, yeah, probably, probably well over 50% of our ingredients are, are straight here from California. Um, and then... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few things I have to source from the East Coast that just don't, were too dry. Yeah, so that was kind of the idea. And then the final thing where it was like, it went, this was a, an idea, a hobby. The, the, to me, like the, the whole like aha moment where I was like, done, we're doing this, is um, I was reading about the um, vermouth regulations for Europe because we don't really have a lot of regulations here in the US. And one of the things that came up was that whole idea of, like, I always thought vermouth had to have wormwood. That's what you're always heard, right? Like, uh, vermouth is pronunciation, vermouth, wormwood. And um, it turns out that's not true. There's a there's a close tie and a tradition, but um, they basically in Europe said, okay, well, you don't have to have wormwood, but you have to have something from the genus Artemisia. So something genetically close to wormwood. So mugwort counts um, and some other things. And I literally, I'll never forget, I Googled native Artemisia to the United States. And the very first one that pops up is literally called Artemisia Californica, which is California sagebrush, which if you've spent any time on the Southern coast of California, like that's 
the smell of California, like that sage aromatic. It, it's not a sage, it's actually an artemisia. So it's, it's, it's very closely related to wormwood. And I just, you know, it was like, oh, there, right? Like that, what is more the idea of vermouth than a winemaker wandering around in the hills outside of his vineyard, picking stuff off of it and sticking it in his wine? From that moment, it still took me two years to develop the recipe. <laughs> and I know like for me, at least when I think about Masakan, right, I think about kind of Friuli being Dan's North Star for that project. Mm -hmm. And in terms of your vermouth, I know it's very much tethered to the ingredients local to California, the herbs and whatnot of North America. But is there a vermouth from, I don't know, Western Europe, whether it's Spain, Italy, or France that for sure. uh, I know you said Masakan vermouth is like super delicious, but anything uh, from across the pond that you really vibe on? No, for sure. I, I, I totally, because I, you know, we, we have other stuff that I'm, I'm working on, but for me, the, the, the core of it, again, that idea of like, it needs to be salt and pepper. I was like, they need to work in classic cocktails. Um, and so while our ingredients are native like the for our first two releases are very very much inspired by you know a classic french dry and a you know a vermouth vitorino sweet style italian so um maybe not a north star i've been calling it the holy trinity but uh like for me the three that um were a total guiding principle was um uh, cookies like vermouth vitorino the Carpano Antica, just because it's so ubiquitous, and and Dolan extra dry, like yeah, Dolan's great, right? And yeah, those are the those are the three that everything else is measured against. I feel like like I think as mm -hmm. if you're a bartender and you have those three in the well, you're feeling fine. You know, like yeah. you might have some preferences for certain drinks, but like you're like okay, I can I can make just about anything, and so yeah, those in terms of a flavor profile, um, you know. At some point, you're you're rising that razor's edge between close enough that it, that it feels familiar to folks to use, but still unique enough that it's a distinct product. And I think that comes also down right to packaging too, right? Because I mean, a finished product like you were describing uh, Masakan's vermouth to be. I mean, the packaging is very different than a bottle of Koki or a bottle of Carpano Antica, right? And yours, I think, are packaged in such a way that they're like good for a bartender to grab and use in a drink if they, if the bar's like too deep and they have like a lot of drinks they have to yeah. make. It's not like this precious bottle that like is really tough to work with, you know? Yeah, well, that was the other challenge was um, price. Like not just um, making it taste good, but figuring out how to get it to a price point that, you know, a, a per ounce cost where it made sense for most bars to use. Because that's, the, I think one of the places where domestic vermouth has really struggled is, is exactly that, like getting it down to a, a point where like it can really actually be a, a workhorse. And when you break down that price, is it is it the cost of grapes? Is it the cost of labor? Is it the cost of the herbs? Like what is the element that's making it prohibitively expensive, you think? From your experience having worked on the wine side for so long, is it, yeah, is yeah. it more um, than that part? Or? Herbs actually, herbs are so concentrated. So the herbs on a per ounce basis are incredibly expensive if you're sourcing, you know, good quality organic, unless <laughs> you're foraging stuff off the hills and then, and then it's free, but it takes a lot of time. Free 99 in Carmel. You just go down there and grab some sagebrush. You're good to go. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I don't put a, an hourly price in my head on my time, which is dumb, but so, you know, but ultimately like they're, they're such a small percentage of the overall product that, it, that actually doesn't add that much cost overall. Um, the, the base wine is a big part of it. You know, one of the really interesting fundamentals that it, we've learned from launching Rockwell 
people tend to associate vermouth as a spirits brand or a spirits type company driven a lot by like martini and rossi and, and some of the big boys that act that way but we're working on wine margins like the bulk of our product is wine so you know we've been talking to distributors and things and they're like well, what kind of programming are you going to put in blah 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 and I, I have to remind them i'm like i don't have vodka money we didn't build like we didn't triple the price <laughs> and build and plan on spending half of that margin on marketing dollars like like i'm barely making any money as is to get it to this price like in fact i'm not working on vodka markups i'm working on you know chardonnay markups yeah grenache markups so uh exactly and so you know you have to you have to do it at scale like we made 1200 cases to start which even dan told me i was insane he was like you're gonna have five years worth of vermouth he's like he's like you're never gonna sell that much and i was like but i i was like i have to make this much to get it to this price um and even then, um, to be honest, like we, someone else was, it was handy because essentially we're targeting about a $9 wholesale cost for the guys in the well and all that. And um, I had one distributor really grilling me that we eventually signed with, but he's like, how are you doing this? Like, how are you getting it to this price in California? And I finally laughed and I was like, it's easy. I'm, um, I'm not making any money. That's funny. <laughs> like, like we, we need to make 10,000 cases and then I get to make a little bit of money. <laughs> but I, to me, I'm fortunate enough that Iconic can, can pay for the house for now, uh, and mm -hmm. I can I can set aside enough working cash at least for now that we can make Rockwell and sell it, and hopefully, you know, if we don't keep getting hit with packaging costs and freight costs and all this stuff, eventually I well, can. Well, hopefully, I can also the... as bars reopen, right? As yeah. people can actually go to cocktail spaces and order a martini. The martini to go model over the past year probably didn't sell as much vermouth across the board. Like I bet now that people are going out to bars again, a lot more cocktails are being sold. I, I don't know for you at least how you think about like the home bar setup versus the at bar experience, you know, yeah, the on-premise yeah. side of things, but um, I'm sure that's a big part of it too. We've been lucky. We've been, we've actually gotten, we're even in the conversation at the table um, with some like chain retail outlets and stuff already just simply because one we've gotten some nice press and two they've seen their own vermouth sales grow during the mm -hmm. pandemic because when you people couldn't yeah. go get a manhattan couldn't go get a negroni people that had never had a bottle of vermouth at home learned how probably never made one before but were craving yeah. it you know started buying it so vermouth sales at least through the retail channel have, have really grown in the last several months um and which is funny because I never thought, I always thought we would be an on-premise project for years. You know, we, that's mostly where I sell my wine. That's mostly to me, like where the real education is the opportunity to talk to knowledgeable people. I'm much better at talking to sommeliers than I am to the public. I'm horrible at public tastings. Like cause I just, <laughs> I started talking about yeast strains or things. I get all excited and then people's eyes glaze over. That's funny. Yeah. It's funny. Like, honestly, this is, this is how bad it is. We, um, Last minute, we had we changed, made this tiny little change on the label, and I didn't catch it. But when my printer made the modification, the UPC got switched to the wrong UPC back. So um, both of our sweet and dry, the original UPC was like like a holding one, so it's like a brake pad or something. It's like registered mm. something completely different. And so we we printed all of the, our first run with the wrong UPC, and um, I thought whatever like bartenders aren't going to care like and we've now had to pay to 
have our warehouse go in and put the correct UPC sticker on oh, all man. of them because we're, we're doing so well in off-premise. And like everyone's like, hey, you know, the, we can't ring I mean, these up. I mean, it's a good problem same. to have, but yeah. Um, so well. in terms of like, I know that you're working with a UC Davis clone, right, for the 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 base wine, right? Is it is it something that you're familiar with? Is it a variety that you had worked with previously, or is this something that you feel is uniquely suited to vermouth production? Yeah. Um, so it's a, the so secret. The grape is um, Symphony. So there's a couple Symphony. Yep. It's a Grenache Gris uh, Muscat hybrid. Um, so it is Vitis vinifera. Um, you know, when I said it, the beginnings of Rockwell were starting to form in New York, I actually had this idea of like, would we go buy a Concord or something and make a base wine out of a native grape? Um, but at the end of the day, I'm a California winemaker. We we live here, and we just don't grow that kind of stuff. There aren't really native grapes grown at scale here in California in that way. Um, so I was searching and um, I found Symphony, and I, and I had. I had no experience making it. I had worked on some negotiate projects and blends for folks for either my brands or other people's brands and had some experience blending it. It's really, really aromatic, the, the muscat like yeah. heritage. Um, and I actually tend to really dislike it as a wine. <laughs> so I've never had a desire to, to make it. Um, but when I was starting to look, you know, there was a, a bunch of things that just kept drawing me back to it. One, it's... Um, like I said, it's a, it's a UC Davis developed clone. It's actually developed by the same guy that created um, Ruby Red, this Mega Purple. Oh, really? Uh, and it took hmm. the guy like 30 years. It's the same guy, Professor. I think it took him like 35 years to perfect the clone for Symphony. It's crazy. He was working on it forever. Um, so, and as far as I know, there's no plantings of Symphony outside of the state of California. So, again, it. it it's cheating a little bit, but it still holds very true to this idea of, of Rockwell and our terroir, what is unique to us. I love that the heritage is Muscat, because that's the traditional grape of Vermouth, the Torino. So there's a little bit of nod there, but our own modern hybrid version. Um, I love that it's aromatic, because it works well for Vermouth. Um, and it was cheap, which I needed <laughs> to yeah. get it to my price book. Who, who's growing it, though? Like, where in California did you find it? It's in Lodi. So the bulk of what we're sourcing, actually, all mm. of it is is um, vineyards down in Lodi. Um, and mm. I, I'm sure it must be grown other places, but it's definitely, um, that's kind of the only places I've ever run into it. I've never seen it outside of, of there. So you're, you're harvesting the grapes, and it's being fermented at the same facility where you're doing all your iconic wine right so there's mm. at least you're you're Actually, getting through that barrier to kind of this um, so i mentioned before i work at that really large facility in Lodi for my yeah, yeah, series yeah. so all of the baseline for the rockwell is made down there so we, we bring it in we, we process the fruit there we get it down to the baseline um just because it's it they're so efficient like i mean that that it's not a, a sexy space to bring people to but it, at some point you have mm -hmm. to admire like the economies of scale and efficiency and then i make all of the extracts through tincture up at the geyserville location and then um i truck up the wine to geyserville where like that's where i do all the final blending and put, putting it together and then we bottle it there you, you were mentioning you know the foraging of the herbs but then in terms of like extracting those aromatics from the herbs making that herb extract whether it's with the um 
Cali sagebrush or with the other herbs that you're using? Uh, like what's kind of the process there for that? What's kind of the technique that you use? Yeah, so it's um, the primary main overall technique is just like we're making tinctures, right? So we're, we're macerating mm -hmm. um, the herbs in high proof spirits. We have, we have essentially just um, neutral grape distillate um, same thing. I don't. I don't do my own distilling. I'm not a distiller. Um, and again, price point driven. I, I, I'm tempted. You know, I, I could see a day that we start to play with some of that stuff. But um, at the end of the day, you know, I'm bumping 13%, 14% base wine up to 16, 16 and a half. So it's only about two percent of the total finished product. Uh, and it's so mm -hmm. herb driven for me. Just anything that's that's neutral and cheap is really effective. Um, and then. Mm -hmm. As for how we make the tinctures, it depends. Every single one is different. Um, you know, that was a big part of the two years of the recipe development was not, you know, year one was probably even just finding out the ingredients to use. I went and just bought everything I could get my hands on, including stuff that wasn't native, just to, to have yeah. a comparison, see what, what it did. And I made hundreds and hundreds of extract trials. Uh, and then once I kind of had it dialed into the base herbs that I wanted, um, then I started to play with that variable because um, as you macerate them, um, you know, they can become bitter if you go too long or that. So we have everything from, we use um, sun-dried uh, black mission fig, which is a kind of a fig that's grown only here in Cali. Um, I macerate that for six months um, where we have other things that um, essentially get like a pour over coffee technique like it's it's dripped through a little v60 yeah big old chemex that's actually what i bought i have it like when i started to build it at scale i bought a chemex and like instead of making coffee i was Hell dripping yeah. high proof through different herbs at different rates and like um there's just so many weird little variables on everyone and then the next step for us that we're building out um now um we're working on getting our own dedicated vermouth space um for production mm -hmm. facility hopefully we'll have that by the end of the year um but because a lot of the herbs and stuff I'm using are um, fresh or seasonal and have varying, every single herb I'm building out a Solera system for. So the idea is like, that's actually why Rockwell has batch numbers on it to start, is um, you know I'm worried about consistency. Like I actually want those mm -hmm. products, you know, I want a bartender to know he's always getting the same thing. Um, and so, um, each with each batch we're developing and, and holding back part of the extracts and reblending them back in. And so once we have fully established Soleras for the extracts, and I feel like we can produce a consistent vermouth every time, well actually my goal is to take the batch numbers off uh, and just have mm. Rockwell vermouth. And then the batch numbers will hopefully be cool kit collectibles or something. You know, if I go to like pouring ribbons in New York and they have like the whole set, and then I know I'll have made it. <laughs> I love it, yeah. The, the equivalent of an NFT, right, is uh, old Campari when it still had the... Uh, no, no, for yeah. sure. I Honestly, I, I keep thinking that. I'm like, if I live to the day that I get to see like a uh, Rockwell Batch 1 sell at auction, you know, my twelve ninety nine <laughs> vermouth go for something, I'll be like, okay, like we did everything right. I've made it. There we go. <laughs> I can die happy. That's funny. So you getting back to that idea of vermouth in this sense not being used as a finished product, but more as a seasoning like salt and pepper, you know, it's, it's really unique, right? Because you have recipes listed on your website for the vermouth and sometimes they say just like gin or vodka you know or other spirits but how important is it for you 
to leave it open to ambiguity rather than saying like use a really like herbal gin or a London dry style gin or a specific brand like this we think is great with gin mare or something or this is really really good with how important is it for you in that conversation with the consumer when you're doing these recipes or educational events like to use specific brands what what's kind of the approach there um honestly i don't think i have an answer um it's hard for me uh to answer that question because while developing this i kept, I kept thinking of it as a as a tool for someone else you know um which is a really, really hard mentality to get out of as a winemaker. <laughs> but, um, you know, I kept saying like, you know, I feel like I spent all this time researching and I, and I think I made a pretty good nail, but I need a carpenter to tell me if I did or not. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not a bartender. Like, I don't come from that background. So while I think I can make a mean drink and I, and I do have preferences, like I, I didn't want to tell someone how to do their, their job. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, for me, like uh, one of the, the gins I'm really obsessed with that I, I do think goes really well with our stuff is um, the Bixby gin. I don't know if you've seen this from, he's not distributed no, at No, I'm all. not familiar with it. Um, I mean, he, he there's, it's like mine. This dude spent two years in his garage developing a gin recipe primarily based on, you know, things he could get here in California. Um, and it made just this really classic gin. It's not weird. It's not crazy. It's just really good kind of not quite London dry but you know um that also though I I will say this when we when I was developing the vermouths as well the other thing I did is I went and bought um all of the market lead spirits so beef eater tanqueray absolute you know on that side on the on the you know Jack Daniels Jim Bean all the stuff on the on the brown side and when I would make a batch I didn't just make like a batch of vermouth and tasted it, I made a batch and then I would go and make like six different martinis, um, primarily two to one. Cause to me, that's the, that's the ratio. And, um, but you know, and same with Negroni. So I would go and I would make a batch, and I had, I had sweet batches that I really liked, but then I would make a Negroni and it would make a horrible Negroni. And I'd be like, well, I can't use this. <laughs> you can't have a sweet vermouth yeah. that makes a shit Negroni. Like, so there was a lot of, of, of of iterations, um, um, especially because there's not a lot of, of information out there. You're kind of reinventing the wheel. You know, the, the winemakers are, I think, are incredibly generous with sharing their knowledge. Uh, and you, you ask friends that make vermouth, and even Dan, as tight as we are, is kind of like, oh yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like everyone's <laughs> got their little. Their, and it's funny, and I have to admit, like after their two, proprietary blend of herbs and spices, and for sure, and and, and it's. Yes. Yeah, because it takes a lot of effort. Like I, yeah, you know, I spent two and a half years doing it. And now I'm now I'm in the same boat. I have friends being like, "Hey, what do you do?" And I'm like, "Ah, man, I could tell you, but like, give me two and a half years to figure that out. I don't want to just give that information." For the 18 away million for listeners of By the Glass podcast, you're, you're not going to spill the beans. <laughs> I think I spilled an awful lot. I gave you the, the yeah. No, no, I gave no, I gave sure. you the how to do it. Now you just got to go do it. You just got to go out there and do it. You mentioned kind of the steep learning curve that's required here. When you think back to when you started Iconic Wines and the challenges you were facing then, you know, flying from New York to California, um, working on that project, having come from more of like a 
uh, you were working on the distro side, importer side, you were working on all those other things before you jumped in full time with Iconic. How would you compare those two learning curves? Yeah, I would say I learned just as much, maybe different types of lessons. Um, I mean, Iconic was just passion. Like there was no real business plan. Like all I knew was Steve Mathiasen wanted to sell me some fruit and Dan Petrowski was offering to help me make it. And I thought the world of those guys. And, and so like I did it. <laughs> like, uh, you're also in a different point in your life like, then when you're just like young and you don't necessarily have the obligations of kids and you can just kind of be like, fuck it. I'm going to try this project. I'm working with really cool people. Let's make it happen. For sure. Right. And, and, and I think I had a chip on my shoulder too, right? Like it was early, um, you know, 2010, I, I forget when John Bonet wrote the new California where it kind of really felt validating for a lot of folks out here that were doing that style of, of more acid driven, you know, trying to change the narrative of what California can be. He wrote that in like what, 2014 or 15? I think so. That's right about when he, yeah. um, and in a lot of ways that book was the inspiration to create Sidekick. Um, mm. Because, and, and that came from, from carrying a bag, not the winemaking side. Um, when mm -hmm. that book came out, you know, I'm flipping through it. And I'm like, at that point, so many people in that book uh, I had recruited and brought to New York for the distributor I was working for. Um, you know, other ones were friends. You know, I'm like, ah, I've been drunk on that guy's couch. He's passed out at my place. Like, <laughs> but I just, I had this yeah. weird aha moment where I was like, oh, like all of these wines are at least 25, 30 bucks a bottle. Um, there's no one... There's no one making a, a really viable under twenty dollar, you know, close to ten dollar by the glass wine in this style out of California. And I had a lot of challenges in that. Um, in terms of when we so, you know, in, in twenty fourteen we took out a big loan um, and started to scale and built Sidekick. So I went from four hundred cases to four thousand cases in eighteen months. It's a big jump. Because again, like it's not. People ask about how do you get wine to a certain price and things. It's the, at a certain level, it's the same as any other industry. You need some scale, um, and you, you know you need to be able to negotiate with your glass guys and get that price down. You need to be able to negotiate with your printer and get that price down. Um, and you know, it, it was weird, but was, like we lost distributors when we launched Sidekick um, for varying reasons. But you know, one of the ones that that makes me sound good that I'll share is that. Um, they were going like, this is too good for the price point. They're like, you need to be, you need to fatten this up. Like this is too, too thin to this. No, no one at this price point wants wine that tastes like this. Mm, okay. People that are buying a, you know, $16, $16 bottle of wine don't want something this acid driven, this kind of like linear yeah exactly they're like you gotta you gotta get some butter and additive in there on your chardonnay you gotta get hmm. you gotta get some oak chips and 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 you know put some petite syrah and like what are you doing releasing 100 percent cabernet that doesn't have mega purple in it that's red instead of purple and doesn't have 10 percent petite verdot in it to make it thick and heavy and mm -hmm. i just was like well there's you know there's literally millions and millions of cases of wine on the market that already tastes like that like why I, yeah. i'm not contributing to the world by making another one of those <laughs> like i wanted to make yeah. a wine i actually wanted to drink um and it's still well and i'm sure a lot of accounts also probably appreciate that right i mean 
I struggled when I ran a wine bar to find that, you know, California red wine that I could put on the list at like $11 a glass that I was excited about, you know? Yeah. It was tough to do. I could find no shortage of wines that I could sell for $16, $17 a glass, but finding wines at that lower price point that you're genuinely excited about as a buyer, it's tough. It's tough to do. No, for sure. And it's not that Gallo isn't capable of making that. Like, yeah. they, they are. Like, they're smart people. They have, like, you know, yeah. doctorate chem- chemists over there. Like, they, they can make good wine or wine that's a style. I shouldn't say that, but, but wine that probably isn't a style that you and I like to drink more yeah but the, at the end of the day there's this kind of market feed and um um whatever I, he probably doesn't listen to this podcast so i'll say but i i just got called out by an old so we submitted i never submitted my wines um for review but i did early but it didn't go well and i just kind of thought you know what like the style of wine i'm trying to make doesn't score well and so uh, we just won't worry about it and then in 2020 happened i thought well maybe maybe things have changed and maybe like, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know how to, like, I couldn't go talk to sommeliers. I couldn't go share bottles. Yeah. So I was like, I guess we'll submit our wine for scores and see what happens. And, um, wine enthusiast gave, uh, our Michael Meyer Chardonnay, Steve Sr. to 95 points, which is fine. Great. It was That's nice amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I just had this really funny experience where like a very old school wine club here in California contacted me. I know because we got the, the score. They were like, they wanted to buy a ton of it. I sent them a bottle. And they wrote me yesterday and were like, this isn't for us. In fact, I don't even understand how this wine got a 95 points. They were like flat out mean about it. And I was like, oh, well, I mean. Yeah, again, if, if it's the kind of person that follows scores and gives a shit about that sort of thing, typically is the person that doesn't go for that style of wine that you and I are excited about. Yeah. You and, know? and I was saying like, you know, I was like, oh, like, well, I think that, you know, we ended up having a really nice conversation, but I was like, you know. I think that you know people are starting to recognize there is another style that is w- worthy of of scoring on its own merit as opposed to being comparative to an archetypal style that was popular for so long here that you can you can make wines in a different lane that are as complex or more complex or, or uh, but it's you know we're still fighting that in the in the press mm-hmm. um, look at Steve, Steve Mathiasen never scored, like all of his wines score in like the high eighties low nineties. Yet that dude's been up for James Beard like three times. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. So it's a strange thing. You know, it's surprising that there's never been, or I don't think there's been a kind of like scoring system of sorts that exists solely for like more minimal intervention, you know, the 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 style of wine that you and I are excited about. That there's no kind of like journal out there, or periodical, anyone applying that kind of like metric of like quote unquote quality to wines like these, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's strange. No, it's interesting. There's, um, yeah. And then I think, I, I don't know if it'll ever come back. It feels more tribal to me now. Like, I think you have, Oh yeah. You know, some ex- extreme examples of kind of the, the natural world or, and then you have kind of almost the other end of the one club I was just talking about where it's still all Parker and so, and then there's kind of, some in-betweens i think i think instagram has taken the place of scores in general where it's just like well now i'm seeing this pop up on these people's like igs that's the equivalent of a parker like 97 point where there are people that are buying it because they saw it on instagram or something like that you know it's happened to me i've had like a master sommelier post a picture of my wine and like next thing i know i get like an email that's like hey i'm friends with so-and-so and i'm like you're not friends with him you just follow him 
but I know exactly. <laughs> That's <what you're> like. <laughs> funny. Like the question is right. Is any press good press? Like getting that 95 points, like it does open doors. It legitimizes it to certain people, especially if you're trying to get the wine placed with a distributor, right? You can point to something that says like, look, you know, someone enjoyed this wine, you know, there's a potential for this wine to succeed out there. So, yeah, I mean, no. we encounter that a lot with the, um, Armenian wine importer that I've been consulting with is like, you know, who's really going to vibe out on these wines? You know, who is drinking Voskiat and Areni? And it's like, we've submitted them to like all the major publications. And I'm yeah. like, I think these wines are exciting for people that want to try different indigenous varieties and none of these wines see new oak. So the person that normally goes and buys prisoner is not going to like this. But then again, it gets Armenian wine in the press and it's a category that people don't know anything about. So as long as people are comfortable with the idea that Armenia makes wine, then then when they see it on the shelf, it's not a totally foreign product to them. It's all noise. You just got to keep making it like a, it feels yeah. like we just, um, like even Instagram and stuff these days feels like you just have to be posting because you just kind of have to constantly be making noise because other people are too. And like, you're just gonna you, you've like, made some good vermouth memes. I've seen a couple <laughs> of memes on, on the Rockwell page. There's, there's some good ones there. Yeah. I was laughing at like, before I even posted those sending them friends that I was like, I guess, well, pandemic times, right? Like I'm not mm -hmm. at a bar drinking, promoting, I'm sitting around on Instagram and I'm like, I guess I'm, I make memes now. <laughs> That's another skill set <laughs> I've learned this year. <laughs> there you go. You love to see it. Cool. Well, Burke, is there anything else you want to let people know about Rockwell, where they can find it, all that good stuff, anything that you want to um, plug here? I should be better at my job. No, um, I mean, if folks want to try it, the cool thing about vermouth is it's wine, so we can um, we can ship direct. Uh, I think we do we do free our, the vermouth SRP is like fifteen bucks a bottle. I think it, you know we fought, like I said we like and I, I, again I, I basically give it away. We do free shipping on four bottles, uh, so sixty mm -hmm. bucks. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with the price of shipping wine, but um, I that's that's literally like I might even lose money depending on where you live if you order four bottles <laughs> from me, but I want people to try it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And then I don't know how many of your listeners are in New York, but we just launched um, with MS Walker there in New York and New Jersey. So yeah. um, I think we are, unfortunately for all y'all that uh, aren't in other certain markets, I think it'll be a little while till we get to Texas just because um, with that coming online and harvest coming, I'm really worried about running out of stock until we can get batch two in mm. bottle. So um, it's a good problem uh, to have, man. But hopefully we'll, we'll be in Texas soon. We'll get to come hang out. Hell yeah. Love it. Cool. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. This yeah, has been great. This. Appreciate it. Awesome. Cheers. All right. Take care. That is our episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can stream every episode of By the Glass ever recorded on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you stream your audio content. We've got over 50 episodes that cover all sorts of things. This may have been our first vermouth episode, but we've done episodes on tiki cocktails, obviously a fuck ton on wine. Uh, last week's episode with Otto Sanchez of Manuel Bakery is fantastic if you want to learn about cannelays and all sorts of delicious pastries. So uh, go back, listen to them, and I'll see you next week. Thanks.